So hello, everyone. My name is Sophia Booth-Magnoni, and I'm a guest interviewer for the Books Aren't Dead podcast. I'm very excited to be speaking today with Mia Fisher, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Colorado, Denver. So Mia, I would love if we could start with you just giving us a brief introduction to you and your work. Yeah, thank you, Sophia, um, so much for having me today and um, to the folks from the Books Aren't Dead podcast. Um, so really looking forward to be talking to you all a little bit more about my book. Um, as Sophia had mentioned, I am an assistant professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. Um, that's where I've been for the past, I think it's my fifth year officially. So um, I got this job right out of graduate school, um, been in Denver, still sort of liking some things, some things not so much but um, have sort of acclimatized there. And um, the book project really is largely based on my dissertation work that I did at the University of Minnesota between sort of 2011 and 2016. And so we can you know, definitely also talk a little bit more about for folks who might be interested in how to turn your dissertation into a book. Um, if that's something folks are interested in, I'm always happy to, to say a bit more about that process. Um, book publishing generally takes a long time. So, um, I'm sure some of you know that, you know, it's it's always a process, even once you finish your disc, sometimes it can take up to three years or more to get to the book. But um, I teach in a communication and media studies department. So um, really a lot of what I write about, I'm also happy that I actually get to teach it and be engaged with um, topics around LGBTQ representation, um, media, technology, social media use for activism, et cetera. So um, I really enjoy being in the classroom and actually also just putting things into practice. And um, otherwise I am a skier, which is nice being in Colorado. So I do love hitting the mountains occasionally. Um, and I have two dogs, which are in the background right now. And you might also hear them at some point, but yeah. So um, thanks for having me and I look forward to this conversation. All right, thanks. Um... So the book that we are discussing today is Terrorizing Gender, Transgender Visibility, and the Surveillance Practices of the U.S. Security State. So first of all, um, Mia, so you frame this book as a critical intervention into some of the narratives about the status of LGBTQ people that tend to dominate media and pop culture. And there's three that, uh, that come up really prevalently in your book. So first, the broad idea that overall we are making progress Second, the emphasis on visibility as a political strategy or actually as the political strategy for um, LGBTQ acceptance. And finally, the idea that we've reached or even passed um, what's called a transgender tipping point. So um, I wanna start with this last one, the transgender tipping point. Do you think, is this a useful concept or does it do more harm than good? Um, what do you think it actually measures as a cultural indicator? Yeah, I think that's a great, great question. Um, and for maybe, I think, explain a little bit to folks um, who maybe, you know, don't remember how this term sort of became very much visible in the media and in larger media discourse sort of starting around 2014, 2016. Um, but the transgender tipping point, I think, is maybe best illustrated um, if we think back to a Time magazine cover that Laverne Cox was on as the first um, Black trans woman um, out black trans woman um, on this cover and that had literally the title, the headline, the transgender tipping point. Um, and sort of the second headline underneath it was um, basically claiming that this was a moment in 2014 where sort of trans people were the quote unquote next civil rights frontier. 
And so there was a lot of, I think, you know, optimism and excitement um, that there was a stark increase in trans visibility in the media, that um, this is also a moment where sort of, you know, Obama administration is on its way out and really um, enacted at the federal level, um, a lot of protections for trans folks. Um, at that point, there was a lot of excitement that trans people could now start serving in the military. Um, there were gender, dis gender identity discrimination um, policies that were also being enacted. Um, Obama extended Title IX protections and some of his um, advisory letters to various departments. So there was just a lot of optimism that somehow allegedly trans folks were now basically fully included in the nation, that they are now belonging. Um, and of course, though, you know, just fast forwarding a couple of years later, once we have um, the Trump presidency in place, um, we know that this actually really didn't materialize, this transgender tipping point, that um, a lot of, especially on the legal side of things, we've seen and we continue to see a really vicious backlash, we can argue. Um, I think if folks are paying attention right now to what's happening in various state legislatures across the country, um, with the rise of anti-trans bills, um, whether it is bills that are trying to prevent trans girls specifically from participating in women's sports, or if we look at um, trans healthcare and um, the ability for trans youth to access gender affirming care, then um, we know that Republican lawmakers right now are really um, trying to pass, frankly, pretty horrendous bills. And so I think um, the question you asked about, you know, what does the trans tipping point actually measure, I think is a great question. Because we could argue that, you know, back in 2014 till 2016, um, really the idea was that, oh, now, you know, we have folks out there like Laverne Cox and Janet Mock, um, and we also have some transmasculine representation in the media, that this seemingly really, you know, presented a moment of inclusion. Um, but as I argue in the book, and as I think we see even more starkly right now, if our current political context, um, that just because you're visible doesn't actually really mean that your material living conditions are changing, that there isn't still rampant discrimination and harassment, that trans women of color are still disproportionately getting killed on the streets. And so, um, you know, I think while this, the trans tipping point is sort of a catchy phrase, um, when we actually look really what it's doing to trans communities, um, I argue at least that it is not particularly useful and that it's actually um, really also produced a lot of harm, a lot of surveillance, um, and that we really aren't as far along as we wished we would be. Right. Yeah, so let's, let's zoom in a little bit on the question of visibility politics there. Um, and I really love the, nu the nuance you bring to this idea. Um, we're in a moment where here so often we have this idea that uh, representation matters and this idea is really gaining ground. But as you demonstrate so clearly in your book, representation itself is not enough. The question is literally, how does representation matter? What do representations do for the actual people who are being represented or supposedly being represented? So what are some of the problems and the dangers of visibility as a political strategy for marginalized folks? Yeah, and I think that really immediately sort of connects what we were just talking about. So I kind of in the book trace sort of the longer history of many, especially sort of LGBTQ nonprofits um, to sort of um, zone in on that for them for the longest time, really a key strategy um, has been to promote visibility of LGBTQ folks, whether it's in news media, whether it's writing them into TV scripts or movie scripts, et cetera. Because the idea was that, oh, if people only get to know 
quote unquote LGBTQ folks, then then we can also work on all these sort of social and legal issues, right? And this is still a strategy that we frankly um, still see very much today. Um, or even if we think about things like the legalization of same-sex marriage back in 2015, if we think about the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, the visibility of particular types of LGBTQ folks was really essential um, for getting these larger shifts in public opinion and then also resulted in some of these legal changes. And as I argue in the book, though, um, this visibility is often very narrow. Historically, it has been, you know, very sort of binary identified white gay men that often sort of capitalized on this visibility. And we can argue, of course, that now we've seen shifts. We have much more diverse LGBTQ folks, whether it's in TV shows, um, whether you know certain activists that are getting spotlighted. Um, but it also leads to the certain tokenization, right? So I can't think you know, of better examples here than, again, going back to Laverne Cox or Janet Mock, um, who are sort of hailed um, and praised in the mainstream. Um, but then we don't really grapple again with the fact that these two trans women of color who are you know, carrying the burden of representation for entire communities, um, their experience is still vastly different than again for the majority of trans women on the ground who often have to engage in underground economies simply to survive. And so I argue that really just relying on visibility um, is, is really not enough. Um, and it is also really dangerous because as I point out with various case studies too, it often is this sort of double-edged sword, right? Just because you're visible um, and you're being seen can also produce all these other adverse effects um, in terms of, for example, how the state monitors, surveils, polices you. And so um, as I point to in the book, I really think we need to be more critical of visibility in and of itself. Um, and as you, Sophia, also pointed to really ask the hard questions about, okay, what does visible actually mean? What, what is it actually achieving and for whom? Whom is it benefiting? Um, and whom is it actually maybe even harming more so than um, if someone is able to quote unquote fly under the radar and remain invisible? Yeah, I have, okay. I have a couple of questions about um, the methodology of your book mm -hmm. leading from these, these, uh, this bigger um, picture. First, I, I wanted, so your book centers on three case studies, um, Chelsea Manning, Cece McDonald, and Monica Jones. I first wanted to ask, how did you choose these three particular case studies and what makes each of them just briefly so emblematic of your argument? Yeah, that's a great question. So I really, um, I was looking very closely at a lot of the um, sort of news coverage around Chelsea Manning when that story first broke, and this now seems forever ago, like 10 years ago, a decade ago, 2010, 2011. Um, I was really looking at the news coverage there, uh, mainly because at the time I was really interested in sort of questions of WikiLeaks, transparency, changes in journalism. So it actually had nothing to do sort of with an LGBTQ trans angle. Um, but then as the story was, you know, progressing, and I was in graduate school, of course, all these other things about Manning started coming out. Um, and so this was really, you know, kind of by accident that I sort of um, started really following this particular story very closely. And then um, I knew as sort of Manning's trial, especially was sort of, you know, coming around and there was more and more coverage that um, I definitely wanted to really use that particular case as one of the case studies. And then um, Cece McDonald was really just because, again, the local connection of being in Minneapolis at the time when this was happening, 
um, you know, being part of some of the queer and anarchist communities that really organized around her at the time. So it was really just the personal connection, being personally on the ground as this was evolving. Um, and in the beginning, it wasn't a national story, right? It was just sort of a local story that barely got coverage until some of this activism took off. Um, so it, when I first, you know, started being engaged and involved in this case, I also really didn't know that this would end up turning into a book chapter that I would, you know, write about it academically. Um, so that was also, I would say, more coincidence. Um, and then Monica Jones was really um, another story that was, you know, getting a lot of attention, at least in certain activist circles right around sort of 2014, 2015, um, that I also just um, almost, I guess, quote unquote, in passing came, came across. But what I realized too, especially with Monica Jones's and CeCe McDonald's stories, were um, so many similarities just in terms of, you know, the treatment they received on the hands of law enforcement, police, um, how black trans women are being clocked, um, how they're viewed as tricksters and deceivers. And so to me, it was also important not to pick these case studies because I think they are, you know, exceptional, um, but because I think they really show us the larger patterns of injustice that um, especially a lot of trans women of color are exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, the chapters on CC McDonald in particular, well, in, in this conversation too, it's clear that you are you are very reflective about your methodology as a as a, as a theorist here, as an academic. Um, you you name this in the book, um, quote, the complex politics of allyship. Um, you do write about, as you just mentioned, that your personal connection, the sort of local connection to the CeCe McDonald, um, like the activist movement, and also about, I, and I love that you mentioned this, um, the inherent power dynamics in academic work and the process of, quote, doing theory on other people and especially on marginalized communities like poor trans people of color, right. and also especially in communities that, that the theorist is not a part of. Um, this happens all the time, of course, in in um, in the academic world. Your book, you say, makes uh, I'm quoting you here a feminist commitment to move beyond the ivory tower. And I think that's very clear in what you're bringing up to, in this conversation too, right? We're talking about policy, we're talking about healthcare, education. Can you say more about that? How do you how do you make that commitment, and what is the role of scholarship in activist movements? Yeah, I think that's a great great question. And this is something in graduate school, I often sort of um, almost butted heads with, especially in my own sort of home discipline, which is communication and media studies. Um, it's a discipline traditionally where, um, you know, activism isn't really valued or isn't really seen as a sort of, you know, legitimate form of express expression within academia. And so I was really fortunate that at the University of Minnesota, I was also um, minoring in women and gender studies. And this is where I really was exposed to a lot more um, literature, particularly around, you know, being critical of your own subject positionality as a researcher um, and of the hierarchies of knowledge production within the academy. Um, and so really that uh, drastically, I think, you know, shifted my thinking um, and how I approach the work that I do. Um, I'm now also lucky to be in a department where we are, you know, a lot of us are calling themselves activist scholars. 
So I think there's also some changes just in terms of how the academy um, at large engages with folks who are doing publicly more activism, who are also doing a lot of public scholarship work. Um, and so for me, I could never really sort of, I think, separate my scholarship out from my activism at this point. Um, so I think that's just, you know, I always tell people I'm very upfront about this. And that, of course, can also bring all sorts of problems with it. Um, but that's, you know, how I, you know, engage with and, and deal with the world. And so particularly with um, CC McDonald is really um, what I what I love about um, being able to having been able to write about CC and still, you know, having a relationship with her today, um, which really means to me, for example, that, um, you know, I engage with her usually once a semester, we are figuring out things where we can be on panels together, where I can bring her to campus. Um, so I really also think it's important that we bring in the people that we quote unquote theorize about, right? Because they are actually the ones who have the knowledge, um, much more so than I do. And so I really think um, treating our informants quote unquote ethically, um, and that means frankly, just paying them, right? Um, so academia comes with a lot of privileges and a lot of power. And so to me, for example, really being able to pay folks for their labor, I think is really important. Um, acknowledging them for their labor. So also like citational practices, I think are really important. Um, and so those are just some ways in which I at least, you know, try to be accountable. And it's never a process that's perfect. So I think this is also something I continue to grapple with, right? Like I sit here, um, you know, in my nice little house and I have the secured line of a tenure track position um, CC is still out there fighting unemployment, um, fighting to find work, fighting to find secure housing. And so I think, you know, um, I have to be really conscious of that. Um, and I also sometimes really grapple with these discrepancies. And I think that's really our responsibilities as folks in the academy, as researchers, um, to, to do right here. And we're not always going to do right. But again, I think it's also the willingness to be vulnerable um, and the willingness to educate yourself and listen to others. Um, that's really important. And so for me, this push to, you know, not just produce work in journals that no one's gonna read beyond people in the academy. So maybe it gets like, you know, 50 readers. But I think especially now also what we've seen with the pandemic, the beauty of Zoom is, right? That we can have, for example, virtual events um, that make a lot of our topics and conversations much more accessible. And that's really one thing actually I've really enjoyed about the pandemic. Um, at CU Denver, we're hosting, for example, next week, a defund abolition and mutual aid event. Um, CC McDonald is one of our panelists. So um, I really enjoy just, you know, focusing um, some of my energy too on more public scholarship outreach projects um, and things that we don't typically associate with, you know, sort of the quote unquote academic -y side of things. That's really exciting um, that you are able to like develop that relationship with someone that you, you know, in, in some cases might just be an informant, um, but then becomes, uh, you know, a, a movement partner with you. Right. Um, so let's, let's talk about CC McDonald, your chapters on CC McDonald a little bit more. Um, so this case study, you argue, really demonstrates that uh, mass media visibility and the law itself as an institution completely fail in CeCe's case to provide justice or recourse for uh, a trans woman of color and um, for gender nonconforming people in general. Um, so based on CeCe's, uh, the free CC campaign and also maybe your ongoing work with her, 
what can we do? Uh, what can social justice movements learn from CC's case and from CC herself as a survivor and advocate about effective organizing for liberation? Oh, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So um, I, I think I'll just maybe provide a little bit of an overview of what happened to her for folks who might not remember or weren't, you know, maybe too young um, for a few years ago to sort of remember what happened to Cece McDonald. But um, Cece McDonald was basically, um, you know, walking down the street with a group of her friends, all LGBTQ folks of color um, in South Minneapolis back 2010, 2011. Um, they were passing a bar that was sort of a white working class biker bar. Um, and in front of that bar was a group of white patrons. They were fairly intoxicated. Um, and so they saw this group of LGBTQ folks of color walking by and started basically harassing them, yelling slurs at them, racist, transphobic, homophobic slurs, et cetera. Um, and then this resulted in a physical altercation. Um, in this altercation, one gentleman particularly started um, chasing after Cece. Um, there was a quarrel. Um, Cece had a pair of fabric scissors in her purse. And um, during this altercation with Dean Schmitz, um, the guy ended up getting stabbed and died. Um, widely, you know, activists, supporters, um, evidence that was collected um, widely confirmed that, you know, CC's um, claim that this was an act of self-defense because this guy was coming chasing after her. However, that is not how um, the prosecution in Minneapolis viewed the case. And so she was actually arrested and charged with murder. And um, so that is just, you know, a little bit of background in terms of what happened to her on this fateful night. Um, and then the decision to really charge her um, with second degree murder basically um, really galvanized a lot of local activism and organizing um, around her. And um, it was really, I think, you know, interesting to see that during, as I sort of chronicle in the book too, um, the folks who came out to support CC, um, a lot of it was sort of LGBTQ, queer anarchist communities. Um, obviously, there were also some um, folks who were doing more work around um, anti-racism, abolition, et cetera. So it was kind of an, an interesting mix of people that really gathered um, to, to organize and rally for CC by really also pointing out um, the injustices that she was facing both from the prosecution, but even while she was incarcerated during um, pretrial proceedings. Um, for example, which is pretty typical, um, they put her in a men's prison and not in a women's prison. Um, they tried to withhold um, medication from her, et cetera. So um, she kind of experienced what a lot of trans people experience when they have interactions um, with the prison industrial complex and law enforcement writ large. And so I think the beauty of really um, what the organizing and activism around CC was able um, to do is um, I think really engage in a lot of grassroots coalition building, not without its problems and with its flaws, I can talk about that too, um, but really also carefully um, sort of centering CC's voice. So um, even though CC was incarcerated and obviously that means you can't just communicate and you know use social media and message and chat with people, um, the, the organizing team was always really careful to make sure that whatever they were doing was actually what CC wanted them to do. Um, because I think this is what we see a lot of times that um, sometimes activism for someone, um, the message can get diluted, right? It can become co-opted. 
And so um, they were really able to push the story out of the sort of local news media framing into a national conversation um, around criminal justice, around what was happening to a lot of trans women of color. Um, and frankly, they were, you know, they had their failures, but they were also quite successful. Um, so ultimately, um, after various sort of legal negotiations, um, Cece actually ended up taking a plea deal, um, which meant that she had to serve, I think it was 40 months, 41 months in prison. Um, and so she was released after about a year and a half. But um, she could have faced up to 40 years if this thing would have gone to trial. Um, and that is, if folks have read Michelle Alexander, right? Unfortunately, also one thing about our current criminal justice system that um, a lot of folks are basically driven to take a plea bargain um, because of money, because of lack of represent, legal representation, et cetera. And so um, the activism definitely, I think, uh, led to the fact that the prosecution was actually dropping some charges at the end, um, that this plea deal um, was being made. And um, that also the momentum and the support for Cece was actually maintained during her incarceration and then also once she was released. Uh, because we know too that um, the, the, you know, having a felony on your record means that you're often landing right back into um, the prison industrial complex. And so helping her with things like um, securing housing, securing a job. Um, so those were all things that activists, even after the, you know, plea bargain had been reached, we're still involved in. Social media was a big part of the, of the, the campaign to free Cecil McDonald. Mm -hmm. And it's something you talk about a lot in your book. And I wonder if you have, um, if you want to say anything more about how social media was used as a tool in this case, effectively, and perhaps less effectively, um, what are the limits and you know, basically what is the promise of using social media as a grassroots yeah. organizing tool and also its dangers. Um, and I also wonder if you, given that that landscape is changing all the time, do you, do you see it operating differently now than it did um, in those years when people were fighting to free CC? Yeah, that's, I think, a great, um, a great point you bring up. So, um, like talking about specifically, again, you know, this was like 2011, 2012. So yes, social media was not quite, I think, as much of a presence as it is now, but of course, things like Twitter were around and Tumblr and WordPress pages, Facebook. And so um, the activists around CC really utilized um, social media very strategically, specifically um, to, on the one hand, push back against some of the local news reporting that was happening, and that was really um, violently misgendering her. Um, it was, um, you know, calling her, quote unquote, basically like an angry, explosive, um, you know, black person, which we see the stereotype, you know, over and over again in coverage. Um, so they really used social media to push back and call out local news coverage and local news reporters. So I think that was one thing that was really um, useful and beneficial for them. So they really tried to take control of the narrative um, and to really push back against um, really some of the you know, she was already basically being persecuted and being judged in this coverage before even the prosecution officially opened their proceedings. And so really pushing back um, against some of this really sensationalizing coverage on the one hand, and then also really using it as an organizing tool. So they did really um, a lot of direct pressure tactics, like they used social media to call on folks to call the prison ward if she didn't get her medication. 
Um, they used it to jam, jam the prosecutor's um, phone lines. Um, they used it to show up the court, right, and pack the courtroom um, and really also protest and rally people on the ground. So it was a really, um, I would say, multi-pronged approach that was largely driven and fueled by social media. And also um, just using it again to move beyond just sort of the context of Minneapolis, but to get the story attention nationwide, if not internationally. Um, and that really worked because it also, you know, they basically were tweeting and hashtagging um, and tagging folks like Janet Mock, like Laverne Cox. Um, and ultimately that sort of retweeting cycle really started getting the attention of some bigger outlets as well. Um, so in that sense, I think it was a really um, effective way to use social media. And as you point out, you know, um, I mean, if we think just back to all the things that have happened again since last summer, um, and now just with the Derek Chauvin verdict, um, you know, 2011 smartphones weren't that common yet. Um, if someone would have shot a video of that altercation, who knows, right, if, if things would have gone down the way that they, they ultimately did. So I really think we definitely can't underestimate the role of technology. Um, and as we know, you know, just with last year, um, the advances in technology, I think have definitely also even brought some more of these injustices to light. And um, as I'm very critical though in the book too, that doesn't mean everything is all good and rosy, right? Tech also has its serious drawbacks, um, whether we talk about surveillance, whether we talk about people sort of, you know, taking over, diluting, co-opting your message. So I think also technology is always a bit of a two-edged two-edged sword as well. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to turn for a moment and discuss another one of your case studies, uh, Chelsea Manning, because you have a lot, a lot to say about Chelsea Manning, particularly as a figure of um, state surveillance. So you illustrate very concretely how the media constructed this comprehensive narrative around Chelsea Manning of deviance uh, in order to undermine her intent as a whistleblower. So we have this, this narrative of deviance um, because she was a trans woman, because she was, quote, mentally unstable, and also as a traitor to the state. These all come together in a way that you show is not new, that, that we have an established history of this this sort of combined narrative of deviance in state and media discourse. So perhaps just as a, as a start, how do these, do you wanna give us a little bit of background about the Chelsea Manning case and how, telling us how these different kinds of othering come together in this figure of Chelsea as a, a traitor for so many and a hero for so many? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I had mentioned, I had sort of stumbled upon the Manning case through WikiLeaks. And um, at that point, there was, you know, hundreds of thousands of some classified, some not classified documents about um, U.S. foreign policy from the Department of Defense, um, the Department of State, that all of a sudden um, were leaked by WikiLeaks and were really revealing some pretty ugly things about um, U.S. foreign policy, specifically in Iraq and Afghanistan in the wake of those two wars. And um, quickly though, all of a sudden the attention shifted onto who had actually provided those documents. And so this is where really Chelsea Manning um, becomes sort of the central focus point on a lot of the media coverage. So it's not so much about more what's actually in the documents. It's like, why did she do it? How did she do it? Um, 
And so what I really was tracing here then was also, of course, um, all the sort of, you know, background information that started coming out about her. Um, and as I trace in the book, really um, sort of the description of theirs allegedly was a dysfunctional family life um, that, um, you know, she went to the military to sort of please her father. And then in the military, she experienced rampant bullying. Then, of course, there's also the coming out story um, once she um, went into the trial phase. And so um, what I really try to sort of trace in the book is how all this coverage about her alleged mental instabilities, um, her broken family life. Um, basically, we're all used to explain why she leaked those documents. Um, but people rarely actually listen to what Chelsea herself said, which is, I felt like, you know, the US public has the right to know about what we're doing um, and the wrongdoing and the killing of civilians that we're engaging in. Um, but her motive, as she articulated herself, was really never prominently featured. It was all about like, oh, this is someone who is, you know, they feel bullied because they're gay or because they're, they're trans. Um, they come from this broken background. And so hence they are mentally unstable and this is why they decided to leak those documents. Um, and then on the other side, you know, besides media coverage, the military itself was also very vicious in its prosecution of her by um, really filing charges against her under the um, aiding the enemy clause, which is this sort of archaic statute that comes out of World War I, um, but has serious consequences, right? I mean, she was sentenced to 35 years in prison, um, not for the aiding the enemy charge, but various other charges sort of falling under it. And so um, I really sort of just trace how she um, became for the military, the government, sort of a traitor to the state, um, how for the media, she was just sort of a quote unquote deranged person that didn't really know what she was doing. Um, and then also even within LGBTQ circles themselves, she sort of became this very divisive figure, um, particularly because at the time, again, was where a lot of folks were lobbying for the don't ask, don't tell repeal. And Manning really fit, didn't fit into that story very well, right? About why gays, lesbians, um, and trans folks should be able to serve. Um, so it was a really complex, complex kind of entanglement and web of various discourses that came together with Manning. And none of them probably got as much attention as the fact then that she also revealed that she um, is trans. And that sort of started a whole new flurry of coverage, of course. Yeah, you do a fantastic job in the book of showing how precisely um, reactions to Chelsea Manning within, even within the LGBTQ community, reveal these major fault lines of the movement. Um, you introduce this concept of transpatriotism to describe how Chelsea was repudiated by mainstream uh, or liberal LGBT media, and especially by, and very prominently by some transgender veterans. Tell me more about transpatriotism, which seems like a really important concept today as well, um, and the ways that Chelsea's case illustrates this split between radical and liberal LGBTQ activism. Yeah, I think that's a, a it's a great question and it's sort of a great entry point into this. Um, I think you know big debate we could argue that that we have. So um, to back up a bit on this concept of transpatriotism. So um, what I noticed too was when I um, was doing, you know, working on this Manning case study um, and some of the debates that were emerging, particularly within LGBTQ publications, websites, social media, et cetera, was that um, some folks were really um, bashing her quite a bit, 
Um, they kind of viewed her as a sort of the black sheep um, of the trans community. Again, particularly folks who were really excited that, hey, we're at this moment where we're pushing for DADT repeal and the legalization of same-sex marriage. And sort of Manning's coverage um, didn't really, again, fit in here very well. And so um, she really became this fault line um, for folks who were, you know, sort of arguing that we need to be featuring stories of LGBTQ heroism, like Dan Choi is someone that I talk about in the book to sort of juxtapose her case with. And um, we need to show that gay and lesbian and trans folks are just as sort of um, well-equipped to fight for the nation than straight folks are. And so um, this is what was really interesting that especially a lot of trans veterans, some also um, not, you know, still active in the military, really coming out um, pretty harshly against what she had done and also really um, basically you know called her a traitor called her as not being a quote-unquote good representative of the trans community um, and there was this whole debate for example about san francisco pride parade that she um, first got nominated as a marshal to represent and she got uninvited um, and it sort of really produced this whole, you know, um, debate. Um, it really showed, as you pointed out, the fault lines between what I would call a more sort of neoliberal um, inclusion focused part of the mainstream LGBTQ movement and the more radical queer folks um, who are clearly um, in support of her and supported her all along also during um, her process, um, filing for, for a pardon for commutation, et cetera. So um, I think she's, and for many, I think still today, she still is this very divisive figure. Um, uh, you know, I still follow Chelsea on Twitter quite a bit. And I don't know if some of you kept up with um, some of the legal proceedings specifically around Julian Assange and whether he'll be extradited to the United States. Um, but Manning was also called in again to testify in front of a grand jury a couple of years ago. Um, she refused to do so and then actually was sent back to jail um, for refusing to testify. So um, even though Obama commuted her sentence, she is still very much under the purview of the state and the government, um, which I think a lot of folks don't really know about or aren't as aware of, but um, definitely something if we wanna talk a little bit more about the surveillance part, I'm certainly happy to expand upon. Yeah, let's, let's do it. <laughs> yes. Um, so as I do, you know, on the one hand in the book, I trace sort of obviously the media coverage around her case um, and point all the ways in which it is flawed. Um, on the other hand, though, I also really um, carefully sort of sifted through various legal documents and also just um, spend a lot of time retracing um, what happened to her in terms of incarceration. Um, she was held in over a thousand days of solitary confinement which is you know, widely considered inhumane and torturous, frankly, um, by lots of human rights organizations. Um, she uh, attempted suicide a couple of times because of her deteriorating mental health being put in solitary confinement for such a long time. Um, similarly, also, she was put into a men's prison um, for most of her incarceration. Um, they refused to um, acknowledge her name, her pronouns, um, to give her women's clothing. So also just lots of struggles, again, that she was enduring at the hands of the state as she was incarcerated um, and really, you know, continuous sort of stabs at her um, identity. And so I trace that on the one hand. And I also really point out that um, a lot of the techniques that were employed against Manning um, as she was facing military trial is actually stuff that we have sort of done for a long time 
not here at home, but often abroad in places like Guantanamo. Um, and so I really argue that, you know, even though Chelsea Manning is a US citizen, um, we actually engaged in practices against Manning that um, later have been found to be illegal and to be violating really various constitutional um, Bill of Rights amendments, et cetera. Um, so that is definitely one thing I also point out just in terms of her actual treatment at the hands of the state. Um, and then, as I just mentioned, the fact that even though, you know, Obama um, pardoned her, commuted her sentence, that um, she is still being watched and she's still being surveilled. Um, and her involvement with WikiLeaks is still sort of of interest to the government till, till today, till this very day, so. I wanna make sure we have time to talk too about your final case study, um, Monica Jones, which I know mm -hmm. I was less familiar with this case than um, the Chelsea Manning or Susan yeah, McDonald. So Monica Jones gives us this really explicit example of entertainment media colluding with state surveillance systems to produce this story of Monica, who is a trans woman of color and a sex worker activist as a highly visible threat to national security. So can you tell us a little bit more about Monica's particular case and the ways that it epitomizes this bigger concern, which is how traumatic and dangerous everyday border crossing situations can be for trans people? Yeah, um, this is really, I mean, it's almost like such a crazy story that it's hard to believe, at least when I sort of first, you know, read up on it. Um, Monica Jones was, this is again back sort of 2012, 2013. Um, she's a social work student at ASU in Phoenix. Um, she also is a sex work rights activist, did a lot of community organizing and work in Phoenix. Um, she catches the attention of law enforcement in Phoenix several times for what they call or have on their books as a quote unquote manifesting prostitution statue, um, which basically means that um, a cop that you know, is maybe undercover, um, can try and pick you up, and then you get a prostitution charge slapped against you. And so she already had some, um, you know, legal encounters in Phoenix. But then the story really turned, I would say, crazy when she, as part of her social work studies, um, wanted to go back to Sydney um, to basically um, do an internship and write a paper about sex work activism in Australia. And so she had gotten her student visa and she had been to Sydney before with no problems. So um, she tries to go back um, for six weeks or so. And then she arrives at the Sydney airport and there she is greeted by a camera team from the reality live TV show, Border Security, um, which kind of, you know, as it sounds is basically a TV show that films people as they come into the Sydney airport and how they manage customs and immigration, et cetera. Um, and the crew is basically asking her if she's willing to let them film as she goes through customs and immigration. Um, and of course, she's basically being held up at customs and immigration because they claim that she violated her student visa because she supposedly engaged in work on a prior trip when she was in Australia and on a student visa, you're not allowed to work. Um, and so it really became this whole, um, you know, interesting exchange where the producers outright admit, hey, we, we, you know, you're a trans woman of color. We think we have a quote unquote juicy story here at our hands. Um, and so this really, um, you know, got the attention of some um, news coverage in the aftermath. Um, she ultimately was denied entry. So she had to return to the United States. She was not admitted to come in. 
Um, and it was really, I think, a good example of how um, you know, media is actually also profiting or trying to profit on some of these, you know, quote unquote, sensationalizing stories. And the fact, too, that um, Customs and Border Immigration in Australia clearly had tipped that reality TV crew off, that they knew exactly what was happening. Um, and then they also really exposed her to very invasive questioning. Um, and so I argue that really this is an example that um, for many trans folks, traveling is an inherently frightening and terrifying experience, right? I don't know how many friends I have who tell me every time they get, you know, they try and fly, the TSA pulls them over for quote unquote abnormalities. And so this really happens to trans folks on a regular basis, um, whether it's just the body scanner that reveals abnormalities um, whether it is you trying to cross international borders and then maybe your documents are not quote unquote lining up in terms of, you know, your, your names listed. Um, and so I really just use her case study um, to also illustrate um, on the one hand, really sort of this explicit collusion between media industries and the state in terms of surveillance and monitoring. And also really just to point to how difficult it is for trans folks, especially also non-binary trans folks who aren't quote unquote passing necessarily um, to navigate these systems of surveillance. Besides these three case studies, I'm wondering if uh, there's other case studies of transgender visibility that you have been thinking of uh, since the book was published. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as I point out in the book, I think one thing um, that I, you know, if I were to do it again, or if I would, you know, pick up some, some other things too, I think what I noticed too is that this book is largely about trans feminine visibility. Um, and I point out in the book that there definitely is um, comparatively very little attention to trans masculine folks. Um, and it has some reasons and, um, you know, historic reasons. It also has some reasons in terms of uh, what we call trans misogyny, so that trans women often um, get a lot more unwanted attention because somehow their womanhood isn't deemed legitimate or authentic. Um, whereas trans men sort of don't challenge masculinity necessarily, right? So they can sort of fly a little more under the radar. Um, so I think definitely um, thinking about case studies of trans masculine representations is certainly something I would love to look into more. And then um, I think not just maybe so much of a case study, but what I've really been struck by is, um, as I'd mentioned at the very beginning, just really sort of the resurgence and the culture wars that are particularly, I think, using trans folks right now as sort of the scapegoats and to fearmonger. Um, so really, I'm actually working right now, and this is still very much in progress, but I've been really sort of closely following these various um, legislative bills that have been introduced, um, because I think um, there's a lot going on in terms of, quote unquote, we have survived Trump, but I think the sentiments that that particular president and his administration have fostered, and the way that Republicans are now trying to sort of figure out, oh, what are we going to do next? Um, is a clear indicator of how sort of um, white supremacy, transphobia, anti-racism um, is, is still very much flourishing and part of our cultural moment. Um, and so for me, it would not be so much maybe a case study, but really just, again, looking at some of these broader um, culture wars that are currently happening. So I just have a couple more questions. So the first is, you end your book 
with this concept that I really love. Um, it's a proposed alternative to visibility politics. You call for a tactic of nobodiness as a mode of critical queer and trans resistance. So can you tell us a little bit more about nobodiness and its power and actually how does one practice it and how can allies support their fellow nobodies? Yeah, and I have to um, totally give credit here to Tourmaline, who is a fabulous black trans rights activist, filmmaker, artist, um, who in a commencement speech several years ago um, came up or formulated this concept of nobodiness. Um, and I was really struck by this commencement address and um, Tourmaline's thinking around nobodiness and what it means as a black trans person to be navigating different spaces. Um, and so in her speech, she basically pointed out that, um, you know, sometimes for trans folks, um, it is important to be visible and you have to be visible. And there's a lot of joy and pleasure in being able to be visible, to be who you are. But we also know again, that there's a lot of harm um, that also can be accompanied by visibility. So sometimes you wanna be under the radar and you wanna remain invisible. And that doesn't mean that you're not also equally doing important work. And so what I really appreciate about this concept that she's offering us is that also, um, you know, a lot of times, especially in academia, I think there's sort of a call for a pure politics. Um, so either you're doing this or you're not doing it right. And so I think nobodiness acknowledges that there really isn't anything that is politically entirely pure. So sometimes we have to be visible and we have to use and abuse the system that we're stuck in and we have to sort of make it work for us. And sometimes we will be able to break out and to create those alternative spaces and world making practices. And so I really like about this approach that it is basically um, a tactical navigation of impossible spaces and places that we're in. And so it's really the strategic um, choice of sometimes being visible, being on a stage, um, and sometimes also doing that hard work that no one wants to be doing. And so I wrote this book before, I think you know, mutual aid work became much more of a popular term. But to me, um, for example, nobodiness and mutual aid are things that I see closely being related and being in conversation with one another. Um, and I give some examples in the book, for example, um, that really are, you know, trans, black, trans-led grassroots organizations that are doing a lot of this hard work behind the scenes, um, where there's not a lot of funding, there's not a lot of charity money coming in, um, but it is really these small grassroots-led organizations that are doing incredibly powerful and important community building um, by providing spaces, for example, um, for sex workers, housing. Um, by figuring out how to have sort of DIY clinics, right? Um, and I think sort of the idea of mutual aid that we've actually seen, I think, flourishing now with the pandemic um, is really something that also, as I mentioned, is closely related to this concept of nobodiness. Thanks. Yeah, that's really powerful, especially in the wake of COVID and the continued work that we have to do um, to rebuild communities in all these right. concrete ways. So finally, I wanted to circle back to your uh, suggestion at the beginning, if you wanted to offer people some thoughts about the process of uh, actually getting the book published and any tips you might have for scholars uh, starting out in their careers. 
Yeah, um, <laughs> I think, you know, one one good advice one of my um, co-advisors always gave me was first and foremost, a good dissertation is a dissertation that's done. So I think, um, you know, it's really easy. I remember my last couple of years in grad school to be like super bogged down and no one wants to really write their dissertation. It's an incredibly painful and tedious process. You have to please all your committee members, right? So I think on the one hand, if you're still in grad school, just get that dissertation done. Um, don't worry too much about it, just get it done. And then the book process is really one that I think oftentimes um, requires some rethinking in terms of how you actually have approached your dissertation. Um, and that's maybe can be the hardest part. So um, I think maybe also taking a break between what you've written for your dis and then coming back to it after a year or two is totally fine. So also just don't be afraid, I would say, of taking a break and taking time, maybe working on some totally different projects, some articles in the meantime. Um, and then what really helped me was um, basically um, making connections with editors at various presses at conferences um, and just getting a feel for um, hearing from other folks who had graduated before me to be like, hey, can I see your book proposal? What does that look like? You know, how do I put a book proposal together? Um, so also just, you know, using your, your networks um, to basically just get more information about what this process in terms of publishing looks like. Um, and what was really helpful for me was that um, I definitely had a couple of connections with editors that I just emailed and was like, here are my ideas, what do you think, before I actually even send out a proposal. Um, and once the proposals went out, um, and you can do those at multiple presses at the same time, you just have to be upfront about it. Um, but it's not like an art, a journal submission where you can, you know, you can't have it under review at, at multiple places, but with your book proposal and your sample chapters, you can. So also don't be afraid of doing that. Um, and then just really, I think, you know, getting a feel for the press and your editor. Um, your editor should be your biggest cheerleader and champion. Um, so, you know, hopefully finding someone that really, you know, believes in your project, is interested in your project, and wants to support you no matter what to get it done. Um, I think is also really, really key. And I was lucky that I found that um, pretty early on, um, even at the end, sort of at, during my grad school, someone had reached out from the University of Nebraska Press. And so it really just kind of took a while, several years for me to actually get to the proposal stage. And there will be big changes from your dissertation, right? So I think also don't be afraid of like, oh, maybe half of my dissertation actually isn't gonna be in my book and that's totally fine. Um, it's just a painful process and it takes time to figure that out what your book is actually about. Because writing a book is a totally different audience than your dissertation committee. Um, the good thing is too, you don't have to please everybody at all times anymore. So um, I would just say, um, you know, so seeing that maybe as a positive thing. Um, but yeah, otherwise, you know, I think also obviously like research or be engaged in a project that you actually care about because this takes a long time. And I definitely was ready to not look at my book once it was finally finished, because you, you need to be in it for the long haul. So um, I'm not sure if those are really all that useful. But um, I'm also happy if folks want to follow up um, available via email on Twitter in terms of book publishing for sure. Great, thank you. That seems like great advice to me. Um, as someone who did not complete the process of turning dissertation into yeah. a book. So thanks. This has been an amazing conversation. Is there anything else yeah. that you want to share with folks about uh, what you're working on? What comes next? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I definitely have to say that um, pandemic year has not been good for research productivity. 
But I do really look forward, as I said, I've been very closely following um, sort of this onslaught of terrible anti-trans bills. So I'm really hoping over the summer to, to get a, a piece out on that, keep an eye out. Um, otherwise, one of my other areas that I'm really interested in is sports. So as I'd mentioned, because a lot of these bills right now are specifically geared towards women's sports and they're supposedly protecting women's sports, which they are not. Right. Um, but so it's really also, um, a, a, for me, really interesting, in, again, in terms of just having that sports background too and bringing those two together right now. So I'm honestly excited just having some time once the semester is over next week to sit down and write. Um, that's what I actually look forward to. So, um, yeah. Great. Yeah. And I look forward to reading that. It's, it's quite a moment. <laughs> it is. It's uh, also hard to keep up because every day there's like new, new terribleness that comes out, <laughs> I would say. But also, I will say this here, if you are in a state that is currently considering some of these bills, um, please get involved. There's so much on the ground, local, state, city activism going on. Um, please pay attention. Um, this is, again, really important for cis folks, for allies to, to step in and step up um, because trans folks themselves will not be able to defeat these bills, but we really need to show up um, for them. So please get involved. Mia, thank you so much for all the amazing work you're doing and thanks for this incredible conversation. Yeah, thank you, Sophia. I'm so glad we made this happen and I look forward to um, listening to it once it's out. All right. Awesome. Take care. Thanks. Thank you.